Welcome to this Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad that you're with us today. We are going to continue our look at the book of Ezra. And the title of today's lesson is Worship Must Come First. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word. We ask that your spirit would be here among us, that you would anoint our hearts, that you would uh, illuminate, Lord, your message to us. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen. According to a 2019 survey, about 39% of Americans go to church almost every Sunday. So last Sunday, there were approximately 115 million people in churches across the United States. Maybe you were one of those people. So why did you go? Now, maybe you went out of habit. Maybe you went because your husband or your wife insisted on it. Maybe you went for the chocolate donuts. But it was probably a more serious reason than these. Church, church plays a vital role in our lives, and one of those roles is worship. We go to church to worship, to enter into the presence of God, to bow before Him. So today, we want to take a look at the importance of worship that we find revealed to us in this third chapter of Ezra. Worship is essential to being the people of God. It has to be our first priority. If we're going to live out the righteous lives that God calls us to, worship must truly come first. And the lesson today shows this was true for this group of exiles who returned to the land of Israel. The first thing they do, before they plant any crops, before they rebuild Jerusalem, before they begin the temple itself, they build an altar and they reestablish the worship of God through the sacrifices. They could not be the people of God. They could not be in a right relationship with their God without the altar and its sacrifices, without a way to worship. Today, God has called us. He's called his people to be righteous, and worship is at the core of that righteousness. I want to begin by looking at our text, Ezra chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. I have these on the screen, and so you can read along with them as I read the text to you. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, 
though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadok, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the buildings of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Hinnadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So as we look into this text, we see that the Jewish people had returned from exile. And the first thing they did was establish this altar. Now the Jewish people had begun a covenant relationship with God. They had entered into an agreement with God, more or less. God would take them as his chosen people. In return, they would be obedient to the law, the law that was handed down through Moses. A critical part of this law were the sacrifices. These sacrifices required an altar. So the altar wasn't just an add-on. It was a crucial part of temple worship. If they were going to be people of God, they needed an altar. And there were a number of different sacrifices that were offered. Some of them were daily sacrifices offered on behalf of all of the people. Some were sacrifices offered on behalf of individuals for a, a variety of different reasons. Now, before the Israelites lived in the land, the Canaanites inhabited uh, this land. They had a number of pagan gods of their own that they worshipped. And they would usually select what was called a high place. And usually it was called a high place because it was a hill of some kind. And they would put their shrines there. They would offer their sacrifices. They would conduct their worship. When the Israelites first came to the land of Canaan, there was no centralized place for them to offer sacrifices. And these high places of the Canaanites, they were a constant attraction to the Israelites. Often the Israelites would use them to offer their sacrifices. The problem, they would often join the Canaanites in worshiping idols there as well. And so these high places were a continual thorn in the side of the Israelites. They were luring them away into idol worship. And you could tell the spiritual health of the nation by their attitudes and their reactions to these high places, whether they were working to get rid of them or whether they were tolerating them. But when Jerusalem was chosen as the site of God's temple, the Jewish people were given very specific instructions. Sacrifices were only to be offered at the temple. They could not be offered anywhere else. I have a scripture verse here on the slide from Deuteronomy chapter 12. Uh, in this, God tells them, Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. 
You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, the Israelites had been in Babylon, surrounded by a pagan people with their pagan gods. Everywhere they looked in Babylon, they would have seen idols and idol worship. They were able to meet in their synagogues while they were in Babylon. They were able to study the law, but they couldn't experience the presence of God as they did in their own land. It just wasn't the same. And so those who chose to come back, a big part of this was they wanted the presence of God among them. And God's spirit was centered upon his temple and its altar. So this is why the first actions they set about upon returning was to set up the altar and begin rebuilding the temple. From the Psalms, we get an idea of how central worship was to the life of the Israelites, how important worship should be to us. I have a slide of several Psalms here. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God. Psalm 100 verse 2, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Psalm 99 5, Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstep, footstool. Holy is he. Now, when we think about worship, worship is a divine encounter with God. Worship is coming into the presence of God. And our purpose is to glorify, to magnify God. When people encountered God through worship, there were incredible changes that took place. Zechariah was worshiping in the temple when he was visited by the angel and told about the birth of John the Baptist. Isaiah was worshiping in the temple when he received his calling as a prophet. Noah worshiped when he came out of the ark. And uh, it was interesting to note, after he worshiped, God smelled the savor of his burnt offering, and God made a promise he would no more disturb or destroy the earth by water. And you can see the effect of the worship upon God. Paul, when he encountered the divine presence of Jesus on the road to Damascus, he became a totally new person, totally changed. And Paul made it clear from later testimony, he wasn't just having a vision. He was encountering uh, the very person of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Uh, Paul considered himself to be an apostle, and an apostle was one of those who had known Jesus Christ in the flesh. Because of his meeting there, because of his worship, Paul considered himself to be an apostle exactly like the rest of the apostles. Now, in our culture, especially in the South, church is a big part of our lives. We have lots of churches, multiple services. You know, most people have a church they attend on at least a semi-regular basis. But is worship taking place? Do we really have divine encounters with God when we come to worship? I have a slide here of a quote from Nancy Missler. And what she says is, If the body of Christ were really taught how to genuinely worship, it would revolutionize the church. And I really believe that's true. In today's lesson, we want to look at why worship is so critical to being God's people 
And we need to make a determination that worship is going to be an essential part of our lives. In the main lesson today, we're going to see that God calls us to be righteous people. If we're going to be righteous before a holy God, worship has to be priority. And it has to be a priority for two reasons. First, worship reveals the awfulness of our condition under sin. When we worship, we are made thoroughly sick of our sin. Without worship, we tend to either accept our sin, make excuses for it, or to be self-righteous. Then, a second reason why worship is crucial is that if we are going to be righteous, it's only in the presence of God that we understand what righteousness truly is. Now, worship has to be a priority. Worship brings us into the presence of God's holiness. We are then convicted of our sin. We're shown our own sinfulness. As we look at Isaiah's experience, and this is from Isaiah chapter 6, we can't be God's people without being righteous. And that begins when we are convicted of our own sinfulness and repent. Self-righteousness can never be sufficient. We have to know the true awfulness of our condition uh, under sin. We have to be thoroughly sick of it. You know, when Isaiah came into the presence of a holy God, he saw his own impurity. He was in the temple. He saw the Lord, it says, high and exalted. And I have a slide of a scripture verse here. You can see his response. When he heard the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah's response was, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So we can't have the spiritual life that's promised to us until we come to terms with our sinfulness, until we deal with this. I have a slide of John 1.10. And this is one of my favorite verses. Jesus has promised us life. He says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us the key to this type of life. He makes a series of eight statements that we call the Beatitudes. All of these are statements that begin with blessed are. And they explain what the spiritual life really is all about. The very first beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I like the way the New Living Translation has this. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need of him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus was telling us the blessing of God can't begin until we realize we have no spiritual standing before God. We are destitute spiritually, spiritually bankrupt, so to speak. The problem with the Jewish people was they were convinced that because of the covenant, because they were God's children, because they were Abraham's descendants, somehow they were spiritually untouchable. Really, it didn't matter how they lived. They had a, an escape clause. They could bring out this fact that they were Abraham's children and this would ensure God's favor. And this led to self-righteousness on their part, especially those who considered themselves the Pharisees. 
Jesus warned his disciples. He said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, their problem was they would look around at the sinners around them. And by comparison, their lives looked pretty good. But if they ever truly worshipped, if they had an encounter with God himself, their sinfulness would have been clearly exposed. So the altar was going to be essential if the Jewish people would have an understanding of God's holiness and the seriousness of their sin. God demanded purity from his people. The law that Moses gave them spelled it out, what it meant to be a holy people. Over and over it was stressed, God is a holy God. He demanded that Israel be a holy people. And this is the whole thrust of the book of Leviticus. What does it mean to be God's people? And especially chapters 17 through 26, we call this the holiness code. It's a series of ethical and ritual laws the people had to obey in order to be holy. Now, I have on a slide Leviticus 19.2 where God tells Moses, he says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If the people were going to be pure and holy, their sin would have to be dealt with. God's presence could not be with the people. He couldn't inhabit his, te- his temple. He couldn't dwell among them without something being done about their sin. So the altar was necessary. It was necessary to remind the Israelites of their sin, to remind them that sin has consequences. Every time the altar was put to use, every time there was an atonement made for sin, something living had to die. You know, a living animal was led to that altar. Its throat was slashed. Its blood was poured out. All of that to provide forgiveness. Now, when this was being done on those occasions when there were huge crowds of people, you could imagine the sight, the sound, the smell that would have been going on. I mean, we're, we're talking thousands of animals, gallons of blood. And, you know, we come forward in our nice air-conditioned churches, you know, our clean clothes. We kneel at a, a, a clean altar, and everything seems so nice and clean. And it's hard sometimes for us to see the true awfulness of our sins. But the Israelites, they were confronted directly by the effect of their sin. They had to watch the life drain out of a sacrificial animal. They had to see its blood splashed on the altar. There was no way to get around the truth of Hebrews 9.22, and this is on the slide as well. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, in our church today, a lot of times we compare ourselves to the culture around us. We convince ourselves that we're okay because we're better than those around us. So we tolerate sin in our lives. We rationalize, well, it's just a little bit of sin. For the most part, we're obeying God. We're certainly doing a better job of obeying God than our neighbors are. You know, we may look at pornography every once in a while. We may leer at women when they can't see us. We don't do things like visit strip joints, visit prostitutes. You know, we know that we're not really following everything God requires of us. But we can look at our lives and say, well, it's, it's just the little stuff. 
we're not, you know, like the drunk or the drug addict or, you know, the man hooked on gambling. We can compare ourselves to our sinful culture. And by comparison, we look pretty good. But when we come into God's presence as an act of worship, His holiness shows us where we truly are. We realize the truth of Isaiah's statement when Isaiah said, All our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Now, sin is a hard topic for us to talk about in the Nazarene church because we preach holiness. You know, this is the doctrine that says it's possible for us to live without sinning. And we draw a clear line between our theology and that of other denominations that says, you know, we can never rise above sin in this life. Now, I want to state very clearly, uh, I believe this. We can be freed from sin. You know, holiness is real. We do not have to keep on sinning. And if we are living lives of casual sin, where we're making no serious efforts to avoid sin, we're fooling ourselves when we call ourselves Christians. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 6. Paul tells us, through Christ, we died to sin and were resurrected to a new life. I have a quote here from Romans uh, where Paul says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness. But we can live above sin. We should live above sin. Most of us have to admit, even as Christians, we find ourselves needing to repent. And we also have to remember, sin is not only what we do when we do things we shouldn't. The Bible also tells us sin is not doing something that we know we should be doing. James 4.17 says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin to them. So if we are known to be Christians, there's a lot of pressure on us to avoid doing things that others can see and label as sin. You know, we don't want people to see us going into a bar, picking up a prostitute. We don't want people to hear us using language that we shouldn't. So outwardly, we avoid those kind of actions that are easily identifiable as sin. But are we doing everything that we know we're supposed to be doing? This is something that's often between us and God. No one else knows when we're committing sins of omission when we fail to do the good that we should be doing. When we preach a gospel of holiness, a gospel that says God intends for you to live above sin and God has provided the means to do so, it can become hard for us to admit or to recognize sin in our lives. And a lot of times we want to label sin as something else. We want to rationalize our way around it. But the problem is when we tolerate sin in our lives, it drains us of our spiritual life and vitality. We are never as effective spiritually as we should be. So it's not like we've lost our salvation, you know, that we've totally backslid, but we're limping along spiritually when we should be sprinting. It's like having a chronic disease. It doesn't kill us, but it drains us of our energy. It makes every day harder than it should be. And so Jesus promised us life to the full, 
a life of abundance. And if you're thinking, well, that doesn't really sound like my life, maybe it's because of sin. Maybe you're harboring sin in your life. God wants to weed that out. When we worship God, when we come into the presence of God, we see a vision of His holiness, and it provokes in us a a disgust for sin. It gives us a desire to truly be holy. Now, worship must also be a priority because it's only in the presence of a holy God that we can know what is truly sin and what is truly righteousness. On our own, we're blinded. Scripture tells us God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Jesus' warnings to his disciples, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so on our own, our ideas of righteousness often end up being wrong. I have several scripture verses here. Isaiah 55, 9. For as high as the heavens is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Romans 11:33. All the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And then in Galatians chapter 1, Paul is very definite. The gospel that he was preaching, it wasn't something that humans came up with. It was revealed to him directly by God. Verses 11 and 12 say, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it of any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, what we see in these verses, we can only know God through revelation. We can only know God as he shows himself to us. Now, humans have amazing brains, and we've used those brains to learn many things about our world, about how our world works. But our brains simply are not capable of figuring out what God is like. You know, our rational minds, even when we have the the best of supercomputers, it isn't up to the job. There are things about God that will never make sense to us because our understanding is so limited. We can know these things only because God reveals them to us. Paul tells us, he says, Now we see through a glass darkly, as the the King James says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly lit, but then face to face. I believe I have a slide of this. The New King James uh, has... We see in a mirror dimly, the Living Bible translates it, in the same way, we can see only a little about God now, as if we were peering at his reflection in a poor mirror. So we have an imperfect, we have a skewed understanding of reality, of who God is. Now, remember, this is Paul speaking. Paul had seen Christ in the flesh. Paul had had visitations from God himself on several occasions. Paul knew the scriptures forward and backwards. But this is his testimony about his knowledge of God and how limited it truly was. So our God is a holy God. And our understanding must begin with this. God is holy. If we are going to be righteous, we uh, are in a right relationship with God behaving righteously, 
then we must be holy as well. Scripture tells us this over and over. God is holy. He calls us to be holy. So what does Scripture mean when it tells us God is holy? Well, there are really two basic ideas. The first idea of holiness is God is separate. God is different. He is unlike anything else, totally unique. God is in a class by himself. Now, a lot of times when we think about God, we, we tend to think of him as basically a much grander, more powerful, more wise version of ourselves. You know, the idea God is like us, just kind of a million, a, a zillion, gazillion, however you want to say it, but uh, a million times better, higher than we are. But when we say God is holy, we are saying God is in a class by himself. It's not just that God is more powerful than us. God is all powerful. Nothing else is. God is not just a billion times wiser than us. God is all wise and nothing else is. Now, the idea of holiness is also the idea of perfect purity. Pure in every way possible. God is pure to the infinite degree. When we say God is holy, we mean there is no moral impurity with God. There is nothing that mars his spiritual and moral perfection. God is morally pure all the time in every way possible. It is impossible for God to be less than perfectly pure. So holiness is not how God acts. Holiness is what God is. Holiness is a description of who God is. Now, God acts in a lot of different ways. We say God is loving, God is merciful, God is patient. But when we say God is holy, we are not saying that God acts in a specific way. We are saying God exists in a specific way. This is the particular or unique essence of God. So it's not an outside moral standard that we apply to God. Holiness is innate to God himself. It's God's way of being. Holiness is simply the way God is. God is holy in his justice. God is holy in his mercy. God is holy in his righteousness. You know, on and on we could go. So holiness is the essence of God. Uh, there is a, a blog on the Internet called the Psalmist Voice Radio. And it, it described a holiness as having these two elements, being in a class of your own and to be entirely morally pure. Now, I like this quote, and I put it on a slide here. The, the website said, when you put these two elements together, you're left with only one conclusion, that the Lord of hosts is the sum and definition of what it means to be holy. He occupies a moral space that no one else has ever occupied before. As such, we have no experience or frame of reference to understand what he is like because there is nothing like him. So the only way we have of knowing what holiness is, is to see God himself. We only understand holiness, the essence of God, when he reveals himself to us. So we can only know what pleases God, what it takes to be righteous, to be right with God, 
as he reveals this to us. And this is the function of worship, to allow us into God's presence so that we can know what it means to be righteous. You know, we see this in the history of the Jewish people. They took the initial revelation that God gave them, the initial law that God spoke to them through Moses, but then they added to it. They built up a whole system of their own traditions, their own rules around this law. They built up their own standards of what it meant to be righteous. You know, they began with very good intentions, but instead of the law being a revelation of God and of God's holiness, the law as taught by the scribes and Pharisees, it became something that blinded men, that kept them away from God. Jesus describes the Pharisees as the blind leading the blind. And it says both of them are headed straight for the ditch. And I have a slide here of Matthew 23 where Jesus warns the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Their righteousness had actually become demonic. It began to serve the interest of Satan rather than the interest of God. Matthew 13, 15 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. So the Israelites needed God's presence. They needed his temple if they were going to know what righteousness really was. Without this knowledge of God, the presence of God, the intimacy of God, the holiness code became a lifeless set of rules, something that led them astray. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees had lost all concept of what true righteousness was. You know, they condemned Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, for showing mercy, which surely was the intent of God's law. The Apostle John describes Jesus as the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Pharisees, when they looked at Jesus, they saw evil incarnate. They saw one that they felt was possessed by a devil. So the same thing is true for us today. If we are going to know what sin and righteousness are, we have to make worship a priority in our lives. We have to have regular times when we come into God's presence and we experience a direct revelation of God. It's the only way that we can know what it means to be holy and righteous. You know, without worship, without a direct experience of God, it becomes too easy to justify uh, our sins. You know, sin just doesn't appear as sin to us. I like this quote, and I put it on a slide for you, from Paul Tripp, where he says, It's only in the face of the holiness of God you fully realize sin is more than a list of bad behaviors and more than breaking a set of abstract rules. Rather, sin is a disastrous condition of the heart. Without regular time in God's presence, we forget how deadly rotten sin is. And we justify, we make excuses, we pretend our particular sins aren't so bad. 
without worship, we develop this skewed sense of righteousness, what it means to be righteous. And uh, I found a survey from Barna. And in his research, he found only 17% of Christians, and these are Christians who consider their faith to be important, who say that they regularly attend church, but only 17% of them actually had a biblical worldview. And I put some of these, uh, some of these uh, statistics on a slide for you. What he found, and this was from March of 2017, he found that 23% of practicing Christians strongly agree that what is morally right or wrong depends on what the individual believes. He found 19% of practicing Christians who strongly agree no one can know for certain what the meaning and purpose there is for life. 15% would strongly agree if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, they're wrong. 20% agree with the statement Meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so that you can make the most of life. And then one I found especially shocking, 28% of practicing Christians would agree all people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. And so we can see when we come up with our own forms of righteousness, we miss the mark. We have to have worship. We have to have an experience of God. We have to come into his presence. And that is because our spiritual lives are a process. You know, we're born into the kingdom of heaven when we become Christians. But then we spend our lives working out what it means to be part of this kingdom. And so it's important that we live a confessional life. As we mature, as we go closer to God, God reveals sin in our lives, things that we never thought of as sin, things that we never realized were sin. You know, all of us have these blind areas, and as we draw closer to God, God reveals them to us. And so it's important that we come to worship on a regular basis. We experience God in His holiness so that we can see ourselves. So I hope in today's lesson that, you know, we've seen this, the importance of regular worship. But the question then becomes, well, how do we do this? You know, what does it mean to make worship a part of our lives? It's not something that's going to happen automatically. It has to be something that we deliberately build into our lives. And so we have to start with two basic understandings of worship. First, worship isn't just something that we do at church on Sundays. We don't just worship for a couple of hours a week and then go home. But worship is something that's intended to be part of our entire lives. And worship is more than just uh, uh, coming to church. Worship is a spiritual discipline. It calls for uh, proactive parts of or proactiveness on our part. You know, uh, it calls for dedication to actually pursuing worship and doing worship. Now, when we worship, we remind ourselves of who God is. We meditate. We pray on the attributes of God. We study the character of God. You know, in worship, we are consistently bringing God and who he is to our mind. And uh, there is a saying from Bob Yandian 
a worshiper is the friend of God. And that really kind of gives you the essence of worship. But an important part of worship as well is that when we worship, we surrender our own will, our choices to his will. So that in everything, we're making a choice based upon what God wants and not what we want. I put up a verse uh, on a slide, Romans 12, 1. He says, Paul is writing here and he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what Paul is telling us then is worship is not just a matter of attitude and remembering who God is, but worship is, is an act on our part where we obey God to the fullest, where we surrender our wills to God. So as we looked at this lesson, uh, I hope this has stood out to you, how the people of Israel made worship a priority and how we have to make worship a priority in our lives as well. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have of worshiping you. We ask that you would help us not to take that lightly, not to take that for granted, but to make your worship a, a crucial, critical part of our lives. And we'll give you praise in your name. Amen.